volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. From the studios of Fox 5 DC in Washington, this is the On the Hill podcast. Tom Fitzgerald along with you, and we welcome you in. It's been a busy week here in Washington. We have a new Congress. The 116th Congress took its seats on Thursday here in D.C., and it's got a decidedly different makeup these days. Joining us on the Hill this time is Gina Foote. She is a vice president of the Glover Park Group, Government Affairs Division, a former chief of staff to Congressman Ted Poe, Republican of Texas. Gina, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to have you. Um, so I was up on the Hill on Thursday when the new Congress sat down and it definitely felt different in there that day. You used to work on the Hill. Um, what did you see when you walked around Congress on Thursday? What did you get? What was your sense of what was changing there? Not only with the political makeup, but of the culture. You could feel the excitement and jubilation throughout mm -hmm. all the halls of Congress. Um, there was almost a giddiness. People were overly excited to be there. And, and, um, Looking at a big picture, they should be. This was a historic class sworn in. We have 127 women sworn in to Congress. Not only is it the largest class of women, it's the most diverse as well. So we have the first Native American woman, two Muslim American women, the youngest woman ever elected, mm -hmm. and the largest number of black and Latina women ever sworn in. So I think women across the country were celebrating, but you certainly felt that down in Congress as well. It was interesting, too. Uh, you know, several of them were, were veterans or or uh, you know, had military backgrounds a, a, as well. We spent a lot of 2018 talking about how the environment that women deal with just by function of working on, on Capitol Hill. Um, stories of sexual harassment, um, stories of other kinds of harassment, um, different lawmakers, you know, like Republicans like Barbara Comstock and you know, Democrat Jackie Spears came together on, on legislation. Um, does this mark something maybe different about how we will look at Congress and how Congress itself operates? Because it was it was a boys club for so long. And that is not only changing in a method of operation. It's changing for real now. I mean, it's just they're broken up. It was a boys club for so long, but I think we still have to be realistic, even though there are 127 women 17 more than last Congress, Congress is still largely made up of men, mm -hmm. and we can't forget that. Um, I, when I was a chief of staff, in the, from the beginning of my career to the end of my career, I saw a significant increase in the number of senior staff being women and offices being run by women. Um, and so I think that these women now entering the freshman class um, feel like they have a mandate from their voters, feel like they're not going to turn back a page and to go back to the way things were done. Um, right before the holidays, we saw Congress come together and finally pass legislation on sexual harassment, ending taxpayer-funded settlements, um, ensuring that uh, 
protections against sexual harassment apply to unpaid interns and staff, of which there are many mm -hmm. on the Hill. So it's definitely a, a step forward. Um, and I think that will only continue. You know, one of the things I always see, obviously, we have protests in this city mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're in a constant state of protest, you know, despite whatever administration is in the White House. One of the things I've always said when it comes to protest is, l let's see what the impact is. Let's see if this produces anything. Because, you know, Lord knows we've had big protests. And once the protest is over, the issues tends to disappear. When the Women's March happened, in January two years ago, I had said, let's see what the impact is. Is that what we're seeing here? Is this 24 months now on from, from the Women's March? Are we seeing the effect of, of all of that? I don't think this is a trend, Tom. Yeah. I mean, since the election of President Trump, women have been mobilized and energized, at least in my life, that I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. And that energy and momentum really was sustained throughout the entire cycle, and it continues today. And I think it's going to continue up into 2020. On the Democrat side, we've already seen Elizabeth Warren being the first candidate, the first female candidate, obviously, right out of the gate. Um, there's going to be many more, probably an unprecedented number of people running. seems like every Democrat in town is mm -hmm. going to be running. And on the Republican side, I think the Republicans are looking and kind of licking their wounds and seeing what they need to do differently. They realize that they need to do more to identify and help provide resources to uh, get more diverse candidates. And we've seen Elise Stefanik, formerly the youngest woman ever elected, now say, you know, she didn't ask permission. She said, I'm going to do this myself and right. I'm going to go across the country and I'm going to find more women to bring into the Republican Party. And so I think you're going to see uh, an impact on both in both sides of the aisle. You bring up 2020 and Elizabeth Warren. So, uh, you know, watching her this week first announce the Exploratory Committee and then going off on a, uh, you know, an Iowa trip. Um, it occurs that women running or considering running in the 2020 cycle are, are now, in the presidential sphere at least, going to have a different issue to face than any <laughs> other previous candidates in that the last time out, the major party for the first time in history nominated a woman, Hillary Clinton, to be the nominee. But now we're hearing things from some circles saying, oh, Elizabeth Warren, we, she'd have to watch out. She doesn't want to fall into the pitfalls of Hillary Clinton. That never seems to be a question that comes about about any man. That's that right. if a, a man, you know, after Mike Dukakis lost, nobody said, oh, should the Democrats not nominate another man? So is that still another double standard that we're And I think swimming women in? across the country, sure, we've made progress, but there's still a double standard, and that's yeah. that, that hasn't ended. And that, I don't think that's going to end. It's just going to be something that these female candidates have to deal with. They know they have to deal with it, and they're just going to move forward. I mean, I think women, uh, you know, women across America and women uh, elected officials see how close Hillary came, mm -hmm. um, and they're energized by that, and they see the questions that she had to answer but that Donald Trump did not have to answer. And so I hope that they're prepared for that. I think they're prepared for that. Um, and I think, unfortunately, those questions are not going to uh, go away. Are, are there any lessons to draw from the Clinton campaign to inform the possible candidacy of, a, of another female? We know, you know Warren has already said she's launched this exploratory committee. We, we know, you know Kamala Harris is, is looking at as well. Uh, Kristen Gildebrand is looking as well. There could be others. Um, how do you look back on 2016 and and take what you can out of that and maybe craft your own way forward for 2020? I think the lessons learned from 2016 were applied in the 2018 election. We saw women uh, play from a different playbook. I mean, they did things that we would previous. I ran a, a 
congressional campaign for three cycles. Mm -hmm. They ran from a different playbook and did things that we would normally caution candidates away from. They talked about their personal lives. They talked about the struggles of raising a family but having a career. Why was that something you would shy somebody away from? It was just something that we just never did. You know, stick to the issues, stay on substance, mm -hmm. you know, don't bring your personal problems into the campaign. And it's, it's not necessarily problems, it's life. And I think that's why these uh, women in particular, and as candidates, resonated so much. They talked about family problems with debt or opioid abuse. And they didn't just talk about the issues that we have typically or traditionally pegged for women voters, reproductive rights, education, women's rights. They talked about issues that affect people on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So that's why we saw health care and pre-existing conditions, immigration and paid family leave. And I think that that's why they resonated. They were authentic candidates, too. And candidates matter and I think that's why they resonated with voters a lot of them are first-time candidates as, as well too which I, I did kind of find remarkable traditionally in politics you know for years you had this stepladder that people would go up you know I was talking to Senator Tim Kaine this week and you know he was talking about you know having been on the you know Richmond City Council becoming Richard mayor then becoming lieutenant governor and then governor and then you know, chairman of the DNC and then on his way up to the United States Senate. But a lot of these new candidates, it's their first time out of the gate. So does that inform them maybe in a different way, in, in a in, in a way that maybe gives them a fresh perspective on things that somebody who has, you know, served in different deliberative bodies or different executive positions maybe not, may not have? Absolutely. And how remarkable, regardless of your political affiliation, that we have people willing for the very first time to raise their hand and step forward and run. And I think having a diversity of opinion and experience and expertise around the table in Congress as we continue to deal with these tough issues will only yield positive results for our country. One, you know, one of the things that people always kind of look at, what I've heard is, you know, that they, they tend to kind of group women in politics into the soccer mom group, which I never quite got because you know as a man I can line up 10 men and they'll all have a different opinion on everything just try talking about sports with a group of people you find <laughs> that out pretty quickly um, do we need to get out of that too? this idea yeah. that just because a woman is in politics they are all necessarily lined up on the same side of something even if they are the same political I party. think it does a great disservice to women to say that just because you're a woman you have to care about X issue I mean these these female candidates and now uh, female elected officials showed us that that's not the case. They talked about a wide array of issues. They bring a di incredibly diverse background. Um, so I think, as I said before, they're not going to just talk about reproductive rights and mm -hmm. education. They're talking about everything, and they're qualified to talk about everything. Um, talk about the generational switch mm -hmm. here. Nancy Pelosi is um, a veteran, to, <laughs> to put <laughs> that's it. That's one way to mild, say it. Yeah. Um, she had a little pushback uh, on retaining the speakership, and some of it came from uh, some, you know, women in her in her own caucus. Now, um, when you look at Nancy Pelosi this week regaining the speaker's chair after eight years, um, a remarkable achievement. Um, but does the way Nancy Pelosi look at the world from her perspective necessarily line up? with this new generation of female lawmakers who are now uh, taking their seats in the House? I don't think you could ever bet against Nancy Pelosi. And although there was some pushback, by and large, these new Democrats backed her. And they propelled her again. I never bought speaker. into that. Nancy yeah. Pelosi was in trouble. No, thing. no. Um, she is smart and she is speaker for a reason. Mm -hmm. And she knows how to um, 
get people to support her and to give when she needs to give. I think her daughter Alex said this week that she will cut off your head and <laughs> not know that you're bleeding before it hits well, the floor. Well, and that's saying something different yeah. from her daughter, right? Um, I don't think I ever said that about my mom. <laughs> yeah, I have a seven-month-old. <laughs> Although my mom was a tight. My me. mother could wield a, a wooden spoon when she wanted to at times, <laughs> but she never cut off anybody's head. I know all about that, yeah. being, being an Italian <laughs> from, from New York. <laughs> um, so does she have work to do with that caucus? Uh, where does this leave us between I don't think sides. she has work to do with that caucus. I mean, they backed her yeah. on Thursday, but there are conversations that are going to be continued to be had. They also made sure um, that she's only going to serve for four years. And, and yeah, and she agreed yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, but look, there's going to be a change in the conversation and a change in the issues that are debated in the House, uh, propelled by this new historic class of freshmen. Um, I think Speaker Pelosi gets that. She's going to lead them through that. And we're going to see, um, you know, we're going to see Gabby Giffords on the Hill next week for the introduction of gun control legislation. Mm -hmm. We're going to see paid family leave get some time this year. That That's an issue that wasn't even addressed last Congress. So I think she understands her caucus mm -hmm. um, and she understands the energy felt by voters across the country. And she's going to continue to del deliver on those. But I think we also have to be realistic that this is divided government. Um, this is still a hyper-partisan, polarized country. Mm -hmm. And so while Democrats under Pelosi's leadership will continue to bring these issues forward, you know, they're not going to be signed into law. As we uh, speak right now, we are uh, mired in the midst of a government shutdown. And one of the things we're seeing play out right now is that while the House has passed legislation to reopen the government, um, that bill is not going to be considered by the Republican-controlled United States Senate right now because... Leader Mitch McConnell has said he's not going to introduce something that the president won't sign. Um, getting back to what you were talking about as far as the agenda that Nancy Pelosi has laid out, and she did say some very specific things the other day about what she wanted to do. Dreamer protection, uh, protections for uh, LBGT mm -hmm. uh, individuals as well. Um, if the Senate doesn't move on any of these things, is it enough to go back to voters and say, we tried? Or do they actually need some wins on these things? Well, I think Republicans recognize that they need to have a different agenda, and they need to talk about issues that resonate with uh, individual Americans and their daily lives. I mean, we saw that from 2018. The Republican message did not resonate, and that's why Democrats carried the day. I think Leader McConnell, I mean, he obviously knows what he's doing, um, but he recognizes at the end of the day it's up to President Trump, and he's the leader of the party, and he's the one that has said that he's only going to sign certain legislation um, that funds this wall, however you define the wall. Um, and so it's up to the White House um, to, you know, come up with some sort of deal with Nancy Pelosi and Schumer. About five, six years ago, Lindsey Graham wound up on some, some hot water, which he's done before, <laughs> probably will do again. Um, in a story that was on the front page of the Washington Post in which he observed in his words that the Republican Party wasn't manufacturing enough white men. And his point was, lost it a lot of folks, but his point was that the Republican Party can't be that, that the Republican Party needs to grow, needs to be more inclusive, and needs to have a broader tent if it were to survive. I can remember back in 2000 when George W. Bush had gotten the nomination, they had had a big rally on the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum with John McCain uh, with <coughs> Hispanic Latino voters, and that was going to be the new, mm -hmm. that was going to be the new uh, uh, area where Republicans were going to recruit from, and now that seems like a million years ago. We see the fallout from you know the Kavanaugh uh, hearings. 
so where does this Republican Party go right now? Down this same path, or do they start to take a look at what's the gains that the Democrats have done and try to replicate it in some way on their own? This isn't a new issue for Republicans, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I worked for Congressman Poe for eight years as his chief of staff, and back after the 14 uh, elections, he had an op-ed as well calling on the Republican Party to have a big tent. Mm -hmm. um, and we're still calling on the Republican Party to have a big tent. And I think after this election, Republicans should recognize, and I think they do recognize, that they have to do two things. First, they have to have that big tent. They have to go across the country and invest and provide resources for more females and more diver diversity among their candidates. Um, and again, that we've seen like Elise Stefanik step forward and try mm -hmm. to do that. And I think aside from just getting a more diverse representation in our candidates, we also need to change our, our messaging. Um, I mean, quite frankly, tax reform did not resonate with American voters, even though mm -hmm. it will, um, Republicans say help improve their lives. It wasn't an issue at the end of the day that uh, voters said <clears throat> was something on the top of their mind. And they mm -hmm. voted for candidates that were talking about pre-existing conditions and health care uh, and paid family leave and immigration. Mm -hmm. um, and so Republicans should realize that they need to take action and, and pivot away from their standard playbook. And, you know, if they need evidence of that, they just look at the tent on the House side. There's yeah. a lot more room in that tent That's right now because right. there are fewer Republicans That's in that right. tent. That's right. And interestingly, if we look at the 2016 election, I mean, voters voted for a President Trump across the country because they felt like he spoke to them. He was the voice. He was he was giving them, he was saying out loud what they were thinking. And mm -hmm. then just two years later, we see voters say the exact same thing about the Democrats. Oh, you're talking about the issues that affect my daily life. You're talking about the issues that I'm thinking. And it was such a quick change. Mm -hmm. um, In so their own way, though, was, was that maybe the key to some of the Democratic women's success? Not that they were repeating anything that Donald Trump candidate was saying, right. but they were talking in a more personal, direct way, which people had previously not experienced. Absolutely. And I think the diversity was, it's not just that, oh, you look like me. It's that, oh, you're saying the things I'm thinking. In you're thinking head. what I'm thinking. You're thinking what I'm thinking. Yeah. And someone's finally saying it. And I want you to be my voice in Washington. So as we enter this cycle right now, um, do you see the front burner continuing to be this divided government right now or do we now turn our attention away from that to whatever is going to be rolling out this year in the presidential no, race? we're in divided government for two more years yeah. i mean regardless of what the issue is we're still in a hyper partisan polarized time um, and that's just going to continue until the next election the uh outlook right now is that uh, there could be upwards of 20 democrats considering just that few yeah only mm. 20 <laughs> um one of them's already been running for a year which mm -hmm. is congressman john delaney out of maryland <laughs> um but uh realistically um is it better or worse for the party to have that big of a field right now because we saw on the republican side four years ago that there was also an enormous field to begin with and Donald Trump was able to emerge out of that pack simply because he was just so dramatically different than every other candidate. So thoughts on that. Is it better for the party to have a big pool of candidates or, you know, anoint somebody right out of the gate and just go with that? I don't know if it's better for the party, but it's better for our country yeah. to have more diversity in thoughts and opinions and backgrounds. And I think the Democrats look to what, what the Republicans went through last cycle and they, they moved their debate. 
um, dates mm-hmm. up earlier to help try to get a candidate sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, regardless of what the party wants to do, you're going to stop these Democrats from running. I mean, I think 20 is maybe too few. There's, it seems like everyone in town is running. Any sense that the president could face a challenger on the Republican side? I don't think so. Not at this point. We'll see what happens down the road. But, um, you know, regardless of what uh, Ben Sass or Rand Paul says, um, I don't think anyone in the Republican Party is going to primary Donald Trump right now. Well, a couple of people have, you know, in the past kind of, you know, raised some questions about it, about ultimately. Yeah, well, Mitt Romney's op-ed yeah. in the Washington Post last week also raised some concerns, but still I don't think Mitt Romney's out there looking to primary the president. All right. Um, we thank you. Gina Foote is a uh, vice president at the Glover Park Group here in Washington, D.C., and she joins us this time on the On the Hill podcast. Coming to you from the studios of Fox 5 D.C. in Washington, you're on the Hill. We'll talk to you next time. Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyen de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.